You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and what we want to do this week is follow up a little bit on uh, what we began talking about uh, last week. This is not going to be a part two, per se. We've already taken care of uh, the main points that I wanted to get across and what we were talking about last week. Um, But now I want to follow up and answer some of the glaring questions that arose, uh, for me anyway, as a result of what we were talking about. Uh, If you noticed, there was a few times uh, throughout that lesson um, that I was... uh, I said there was more that could be said here, or there is a a question here uh, that has been uh, raised and we don't have time really to answer it. Well, I wanted to take this week's lesson and uh, and answer those kinds of questions. Now, if you'll remember, I, I specifically asked that uh, if you have questions regarding this episode, um, that you go ahead and get those uh, sent in. I asked that last week. Um, And so I'm actually pre-recording this, kind of anticipating some of the most common questions. So it may be uh, that some of you have have asked the questions that we're answering here, uh, but I did not draw them from those. Per se, uh, I went ahead and, and anticipated these because these were questions that that I saw kind of naturally flowing out of what we were talking about that were left that were left open, and in a sense, uh, you know, I want to be able to package this up uh, in a way that I can refer to these these two resources for people uh, in order to get thorough answers to this question because this is a big foundational issue uh, in creationism that up to this point we haven't really dug deep into. And so I wanted to take last week and this week to do that. And uh, I'll just go ahead and say up front that we may go ahead uh, and do one more episode um, Along these lines, and uh, what what we may discuss at that point is is a little bit more of a biblical uh, understanding of the fall as a whole. Um, maybe looking at it in its wider Christian context. Um, maybe looking at it specifically as an apologetic as well. How to how to answer the problem of evil using this line of argumentation, and um, you know, really making. Uh, find, figuring out how to make the fall make sense to people. Uh, it, I mean, honestly, one of the biggest issues, and if you talk to people, if you have spiritual conversations uh, a lot, you know this, you know this. One of the biggest stumbling blocks to faith that people have, even in this day where there are such good answers, even in this day where such good uh, philosophers have come along and weighed in on this issue and answered the biggest, toughest questions regarding this, the problem of evil, is still such a big deal for people. They just can't get over it. And this is certainly made worse for those who read the Bible without a proper understanding of of what the Bible is teaching. And 
they see a lot of these same passages in the Old Testament, in Joshua and so forth, that probably trouble us from time to time, if we're honest, at first blush. I mean, can we just be honest about this for a minute? I don't know anybody who reads uh, the record of these conquests and, you know, just sits here waving their flag, go, God, go. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want anybody to die. In Second Peter, we know that he says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But see, God is merciful, and God is love, but God is also just. And in order for God to be just, in order for God to fulfill the duty that he has to his own nature, he cannot violate his own nature. And God is a just God, and he must fulfill his promises, and he must carry out just and righteous judgment. Now, that sounds all well and good to say, but if you're missing the greater context, if you're missing the fall of man, if you're missing God's willingness to save any soul who would call out on him, if you are missing the fact that God does not pleasure in the death of the wicked. By the way, that's Old Testament. That's all Old Testament. People say the Old Testament, God's not loving. He's a vicious, cru- cruel God. Um, when people say that, they've, 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 they've read a few verses out of context, and they have not understood the Bible one bit. So how are we going to fix that? Well, we got to point them back to the story. We got to point it back to the story, and I just want to say, and again, this is going to be the purpose I think of next. I'm pretty sure we're going to do this of next week's lesson is just to kind of put the final nail in the coffin on this and really um, button this up nicely in in a way to help everybody understand. But but honestly, if you're missing the proper context of the fall, then I think you're missing the biblical response, and also simply just the, I mean, the greatest and the correct response to the problem of evil. And understanding this issue within a young age context, the way that we look at it, seems to me to be the only consistent way to view it. Uh, Atheists have pointed out Christopher Hitchens being one of them. Of course, I'm, I'm certainly not endorsing Christopher Hitchens. Um, it's unfortunate that the man was just a belligerent atheist, a, a hater of, of religion, and unable to see the uh, suffering and death that resulted as uh, a, a natural following of folks who subscribe to his views, not religious views. I digress. My point I'm trying to make is that even Hitchens realized that if you're going to have death before the fall, you've really got no way at all to differentiate between pre-fall and post-fall in a way that is consistent. Uh, 
the only defense, it seems to me, would be to show somehow that animal death and human death are not uh, linked. But then you would have to show that human death and animal, or excuse me, that human vegetarianism and animal vegetarianism are not linked. And I'm not sure how you can read Genesis 1, 29 and 30 and just simply not get that understanding. To me, even a Sunday school level read over the text or a, a deep critical read over the text, either one of those, I think is going to result in the same um, conclusion there if we're being consistent. So the fall is a is a big problem and, and something that needs to be placed in the correct context of Scripture. Now, I've said a little bit there, and of course, we're going to go ahead and, and take uh, and take that subject on next week to hopefully close this up in a way that's kind of neat and tidy, and you might want to have your Bibles ready. We're probably going to be uh, using a lot of Scripture next week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm a, a, a preacher, um, a Baptist preacher at that, <laughs> all right? So, um, you know, whenever I get the Bible out and really start going through uh, 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 verses like that, you know, you never just, you never know quite what to expect. So, um, be ready for that. But, but again, we want to know what the Bible says about this because, uh, we want to accurately and faithfully represent the God we love and adore and who saved our soul. Isn't that right? We certainly don't want to do anything to displease him. And we certainly don't want to misrepresent his word intentionally or unintentionally. So we want to make sure we get this right. And that's why it's a big deal, okay? That's why it's a big deal. So um, we're going to save that for next week. And for this week, I want to go ahead and answer some of these questions. So I've got uh, five questions here um, that I want to answer for you uh, and just give my answers on this. And again, if more questions arise from this, feel free to ask. Uh, That's no problem. Um, Otherwise, though, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. So the first question that uh, that I wrote down here anticipating is what about viruses and pathogens? So in light of what we, uh, again, talked about uh, last week, um, obviously there was a point in time that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. By the way, I think last week I uh, kind of uh, accidentally said that they took an apple, that, that they ate an apple. Um, that is obviously not true. Um, I suppose it could have been an apple, but the Bible just says a fruit. So um, in any sense, I, I misstepped that, so I apologize. But but So in the beginning, um, God creates the heaven and the earth. Everything is very good. It's a very good creation. Genesis 3 records the fall. But the problem comes in that the Bible claims that God stopped creating prior to the fall happening. He stopped creating. In other words, viruses and pathogens, if they are new things that come into the mix, then this seems to violate the principle of God's rest. Isn't that right? Because because if God if the fall happens and as a result of the fall, God 
creates these new viruses and pathogens, well, then he has begun to create again. Because these are new things. So, in light of that, in order to be consistent with the scriptures, we're going to have to say that viruses and pathogens existed pre-fall. But if we say that viruses and pathogens existed pre-fall, don't we have an issue with the death and suffering and pain? In other words, doesn't this scientifically necessitate that, that there was at least some sort of suffering and animal death uh, pre-fall? That, really, that's the rub here. Um, and it has to do with these viruses and pathogens. Well, okay. So first of all, let me just say this. Uh, we, we must always remember that we use science in a ministerial relationship to the Bible, not a magisterial relationship to the Bible. If you've listened to my podcast for any amount of time, uh, we've talked about that on multiple occasions, but essentially what that means is that when, when you place a, when you observe something in, in science and you use that to fundamentally alter the way you interpret scripture. That is called a magisterial use of scripture or of science or of whatever it is. And um, it, hermeneutically speaking, it's eisegesis. It's reading into the text something that is not there um, based on something that you have observed that came from outside of the text. Now, the way many try to get around this is by saying that nature is somehow like the 67th book of the Bible. Well, that's um, what I call the two-book fallacy. I, 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 others call it that as well. Not original to me. Um, and uh, perhaps we're going to talk about that sometime here. Don't have time to go over it right now. But, but in any sense, um, nature, it seems to me, is not sufficient to produce the salvation of a soul. And I think you can read Acts 10, and, I mean, certainly natural theology and natural revelation, these are good things. However, it appears to me that the Acts 10 uh, pattern, the way this is laid out, is somebody, uh, Cornelius, namely in this case, observes the fact that there is a, uh, a God. He observes and worships this God, I don't think he was a Jew. Well, he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. That's the whole point. He was. Uh, this was the first Gentile salvation, but he realized that there was something else out there. God sends Peter to him, and after talking for a, lot, a little while, begins uh, teaching or and preaching to him about Jesus. Now, there's more going on there in that story. Um, in one sense, and if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. In one sense, it was just as much for Peter. Um, to understand the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan of salvation, uh, as it was for Cornelius. But I think that we shouldn't miss what happened in that case. We have a case where somebody began to respond to the light that they had. And what did Jesus do? Or what did God do? He sent, he sent a messenger to tell him about Jesus Christ, and he got saved. All right? So I realized that 
your theology is going to somewhat depend on how you interpret all of that. But that that's the way it seems to me. It, it seems clear to me that, um, that this person responded to the light he had, and God sent somebody to him who preached to him Jesus. And I just can't help but wonder if that's just how it works. All right? So um, what we need to understand is that is that nature uh, is great. Nature certainly reflects and declares the glory of God. But nature is not the scriptures. Nature is not the Bible. And so we should not use anything that we observe in nature because it is subject to um, fallible interpretation by those who are not regenerated. Not only that, but it's controlled by those who are not regenerated. And you can call me a separatist. You can call me an exclusivist. Whatever you want to say, but I'm not going to allow someone who does not believe in the fundamental doctrines taught by Scripture to tell me how I ought to interpret my Bible. Uh, I'm just not going to let it happen that way. So um, what I'm trying to say is this, and this, this follows for all the questions. That's why I wanted to take a minute and talk about it. When we observe something in science that seems to, at face value, conflict in Scripture, let's take a look further from the assumption that the Scriptures are true and see if we can make this work in a reasonable way with the science. And I think we can do that in this case. So, um, what I want to argue here is that it's actually quite possible that helpful versions of these viruses and pathogens existed before the fall, and that it's entirely possible that these things are just merely a result of harmful genetic mutations that have taken place as a result of the fall and instated after the fall happened. So this would be a fundamental change in the nature of organisms, much like in the final restoration, it at least appears at face value that there is going to be a fundamental change that takes place. For for instance, when the when the wolf and the lamb lie down together, are we to assume that God then violates His principle about new uh, new physical creation uh, and creates a new peaceful wolf and a lamb? Well, I don't think so. I think that maybe ones that are already here are just going to simply change uh, and undergo um, this reversal of the effects of the fall. And so I think then we can we can rightly understand that something happened, or maybe perhaps there was a uh, a controller in place. And we're going to mention this in a minute, but but perhaps maybe there was a controller in place that kept these mutations and these copying errors, these, these uh, uh, inherited traits as well, from, from degrading harmfully and never moving into this um, state of, of what we would consider now a virus or um, a pathogen. And so I consulted a few guys on this, uh, Dr. Kurt Wise and, and, and uh, of course Dr. Jonathan uh, Sarfati were using a lot of his material again still um, because this study kind of, uh, was birthed into from a uh, while well, I was reading his book, and a particular section of his book really struck my eye. I thought we needed to talk about this. So um, now, Dr. Todd Wood also has a theory on this. He calls it uh, aging theory. A G E uh, I N G altruistic uh, genetic element theory. 
All right, and and I haven't fleshed this out totally. I actually have it down to follow up on this. I, I haven't seen any written work on this theory in a little while, and so I'm going to follow up on this and see where Dr. Wood is, if he still holds to some version of this or what. Um, but uh, essentially, Dr. Wise, uh, in writing about this, said that uh, uh, mobile genetic elements, including viruses, were created by God to facilitate rapid biological change for example, following the fall and the flood. Now, this is a one potential way of looking at the problem, although I'm not sure how convinced I am um, because it does seem to entail a new creation of some sort. Now, maybe it does not entail the creation of a new organism, uh, for sure. I don't know. Um but, uh, but, but, you know, it's also possible that these things were created during the creation week. Um, and then uh, these are elements, these particular things that were facilitated to um, create this rapid biological change, it is possible that these things are what degraded following the fall. So Dr. Wise writes this, One effect of the fall was the lessening of efficiency in biological systems. Before the fall, genetic information was apparently copied without error, or, at the very least, all copying errors were corrected. The mechanism by which this occurred is unknown, but for biological systems to persist indefinitely, errorless copying seems to be essential. Um... Now, notice what he said there. The assumption is that biological systems are going to persist indefinitely. We assume that. And if that's going to be the case, then um, errorless copying must come into play. He continues on here. Beginning after the fall, genetic copying errors, such as mutations, entered the world and began to accumulate in the DNA of organisms. Some mutations compromised the design of the organism, leading to failed or impaired function. This led to diseases such as diabetes and sickle cell anemia. Some mutations caused entire populations of organisms to change their behavior and begin to hurt other organisms, taking away more from them uh, than they gave back, even to the point of death. Examples are parasites and pathological bacteria. This would explain how two similar strains of Ebola could impact humans in such radically different ways. One, not harmful at all. The other, one of the deadliest disease organisms known to man. Young age creationism suggests that mutations are recent rather than an old feature of life. So now we have something scientific, uh, how Ebola radically affects different humans, that seems to be a consistent uh, expectation of uh, of this theory that perhaps something was once created good and as a result of maybe God withdrawing some of his sustaining power, which seems to be the case. Um, in, in the wide spectrum, when I look at the fall, it seems to me that uh, one of the biggest differences between pre-fall and the, post and the post-fall world um Again, going off of the assumption that God is not creating anything new, it looks like if God were just to loosen the reins a little bit, or if he were just to back off the pedal just a little bit, um, 
perhaps causing the uh or or not causing but allowing the natural courses of nature to uh, take place in things that God was once withholding uh such as these mutation errors becoming harmful and eventually turning into things such as viruses and pathogens and, and other um diseases so this is certainly um one way of looking at it uh, I'm going to add uh, Sarfati's thoughts uh, on this as well. He says, even something usually known as a deadly germ can have a mild variant that causes no illness. Presumably, something like this was created during creation week. Even today, Vibrio cholera, the germ that causes cholera, has a non-virulent form. It also has a role in the ecosystems of brackish waters and estuaries, and the original may have had a role living symbiotically with some people. Even its toxin probably has a beneficial mutation in small amounts, like most poisons. The virulence arose after the fall by natural selection of varieties, producing more and more toxin as contaminated water became more Plentiful. That makes sense. No new information would be needed for this process. That's key. Also, recent evidence shows that the loss of chemotaxis, the ability to move in response to changes in chemical concentrations, will markedly increase ineffectivity in an infant mouse model of cholera. Some clues to possible benign pre-fall roles for viruses can be gleaned from functions they have even today. Viruses are non-living entities because they can't reproduce on their own, but need the copying machi machinery of more complex cells. But they have a number of useful functions, including transporting genes um, among plants and animals, keeping soil fertile, keeping water clean, and regulating gases in the atmosphere. So I can't add much more than the words from from these two guys. So uh, I'm going to close it down after that. I mean, it seems to me like there's no issue here. It seems to me that God simply um, created these organisms in the beginning to possibly have helpful roles. And as a result of God, again, loosening up on the pedal a little bit, uh, loosening the reins a little bit, it looks like these things uh, began to take over, take control, um, become subject to these uh, harmful copying uh, mistakes and errors, and they simply began to um, do what the rest of us did in the fall. Ultimately, we became prideful. We want, we took more than than what belonged to us. We we wanted to take more than what belonged to us, and in a very uh, almost poetic way, it seems that the viruses and pathogens began doing that as well. So I don't think there's any issue here or any contradiction for a young age view on this. All right, now another question we might address is this: What exactly changed to allow for carnivory? After the fall. Now, this is a somewhat controversial issue. Now, there is a creationist um, consensus on this, broadly speaking. There are a few different answers that are given. Those answers largely depend on context, and I'm actually going to take them 
right from uh, Sarfati's book because uh, he lists them out. And uh, based on the research I've done, um, which I did go further to my research to confirm, um, he's right. It seems to me there are only these three explanations for this issue. Um, again, let me reiterate this. We know that new life, at least, Nefesh Kaya, at least, was not created because God into his work. But at the same time, we know that really God didn't create anything else. Isn't that right? Because God ended his work of creation. And this is also consistent with the first and second laws of thermodynamics. So uh, much like we asked the question regarding viruses and pathogens, if there was a, a difference there, what is it exactly that changed to allow for carnivory after the fall? We have a fossil record. The fossil record seems simply replete with examples of, of disease and, and suffering, bloodshed, certainly death. And yet we know that the command in place was that of uh, vegetarianism. Now, one creationist, I, I want to say his name was, uh, last name was Larson, I'm pretty sure. It might be Brian Larson. He's got an article, uh, a paper in the Journal of Creation discussing this issue. And in it, he argues that carnivory was not occurring pre-flood post-fall. He wants to argue in this paper, by the way, this is a very minority view, I'm just mentioning it here. He's actually the only person I've ever heard directly argue for this for this view. Um, his point is that the restrictions on vegetarianism were not lifted until after the, uh, the flood, excuse me. Now, it doesn't specifically mention um, that any animalistic restrictions were lifted uh, immediately pre-fall. It, it simply just mentions the, the human restrictions. And, of course, we could infer from that that the animalistic restrictions were lifted there as well. Now, the difficulty for me is that in, at the end of the very good creation in Genesis 1, 29 and 30, it discusses both of them separately. But then it only addresses one post-fall. Post-flood, excuse me. <laughs> I keep getting my Fs mixed up. Okay, post-flood, it only addresses one. Um, there is no reiteration of this in 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 the middle point between the fall and the flood. There's no reiter reiteration of this dictum. Simply, we find that humans are now allowed, after the, the flood, to begin eating meat. And, of course, we assume that that means it's okay for all other animals as well. Um, so one of the issues... With this, and I appreciate where he's going with this. I, I, I trust me. I get, I get what he's trying to say here. Now, he he says that we need to take a closer look at the fossil record. He says that whenever we see examples of death, disease, suffering, bloodshed, things of that sort, he says that we're not necessarily evaluating it fairly. Perhaps it was a post-flood. Um, local flooding event that 
resulted in this specific case where indeed it appears there was some sort of carnivory happening. And I appreciate that. But it seems it seems very ad hoc to me. It seems very ad hoc to me. Um, to me, it just sounds like we're not we're not dealing credibly and credulously with with the data. It, it, to me, I, I don't. I, almost every creation scientist is agreed. All right, that there are recordings of this uh, disease, suffering, bloodshed, death, etc., in what we would consider to be flood layers. So, um, I think this is an issue that we have to deal with head on. And again, we're not trying to make a, a magisterial use of Scripture here by doing this, because I don't think we're violating anything scripturally doing this. And I think maybe that's the rub. I think um, uh, Mr. Larson, you know, respectfully to him, I, I think he is making inferences into the text and reading things into the text that are not there, that place unnecessary restrictions on it. And here's the thing. It just seems common sense to me. If sin entered the world and death by sin, then I think we're pretty right to assume if, if, if once sin is in, sin is in. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, what's the first thing they did? They ran to try to cover it up. So are we to believe that somehow they, um, animals and humans alike, followed God's command about what things they ought to eat? Um after sin had entered the world, maybe as a general guideline they did, just as you and I, as a general guideline, do our best not to sin before a holy and righteous God every day as saved Christians. Nevertheless, we do. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. All right? So we have sin, even though we've been regenerated and commanded not to sin. All right? Now, of course, animals don't sin. They're not subject to a moral law in the same sense that we are. But the point is that when fall entered, God's created order was violated. And because of these harmful mutations, these harmful genetic things that were happening, um, no doubt there was, uh, because now the creation was cursed. So no doubt there was... Um, Certainly, uh, some nat natural disasters and things that were beginning to take place. As a matter of fact, Dr. Kurt Wise has argued that post-fall is when the flood, or, or, or when the earth rather, started to put some of these processes into, the pla into place that culminated and culminated and built up and built up. And when the flood finally happened, essentially the trigger to the flood was just this natural um recourse of, uh, or this natural course of events that was taking place as a result of the curse that was on the creation. And this is what actually triggered the global flooding event. And again, he's got a, a very detailed way that he lays that out. And so we'll talk about that some other time. But the point I wanted to make is that the creation is 
cursed, the creation itself. So I, I don't think it's reasonable to assume that animals are just simply obeying God's laws here on this. Now, something that I appreciate that Larson is trying to help with here is this idea of Noah and the um, animals who came to the ark uh, all getting along. Isn't that right? I mean, we, we're talking about, you know, lions and tigers and bears and things like that. Maybe not those particular animals, but um, certainly distant ancestors of those things. And we're talking about them getting along with um, with Noah, at least controlled enough for for that amount of time uh, to be able to deal with it. But uh, but I think the the writer of this paper is missing something. He's missing the fact that God brought the animals to the ark. They didn't just wander there. Noah didn't didn't go out and coerce them himself. God brought the animals. What does that mean? That means God was controlling the animals, supernaturally it would appear, to simply come to the ark. Do you think that if God can tell his animals, a specific group of his animals, to come to the ark, that he can work in those particular organisms and not tell them, but direct them to uh, be peaceful for the next year or so? I think so. I don't think that's an unreasonable limitation to place on God. He made a donkey talk a little bit later. Isn't that right? So, um, I'm just not willing to believe that that's outside of the limits of God. Now, of course, that also means that, that yeah, God could have supernaturally done that, um, even post-fall. Uh, he could have supernaturally preserved that law. But why, why supernaturally preserve that law when sin has, in a sense, allowed, okay, loosely speaking, sin has... has allowed um, the reproduction of sin. Man is now living in sin, and so man can, though he shouldn't, but man can sin against God. Isn't that right? So um, so let's answer this question. What changed in? Let's just assume, all right, that, that, that respectfully that Mr. Larson is wrong here. The Bible does not dogmatically state this. It must be inferred. It's certainly not obvious to me from the text and the difficulty with Noah's Ark and the animals, which is probably the main one that stood out to me is really no difficulty because God brought the animals. And so there we have it. The fossil record certainly seems to show that carnivory was happening during around the time of the flood. Remember God destroyed all animals and be and, 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 and humans and beasts and everything. Um, and there was a reason for that that goes a little deeper than the surface, which we won't get into here. Look at uh, Genesis 6, and it deals with the generations of Noah versus the generations of others and, and why the world was so evil continually. But remember, a part of this evil, I think, had to do with the animal kingdom um, as well. well. We see all that today still, but nevertheless, the flood was a judgment on the whole world. So um, what can, assuming that indeed carnivory did, begin to take place immediately post-fall. What changed? So here are probably the three main creationist answers to this. And the first one um, is going to kind of sound 
familiar because we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, so Sarfatis says this, The Bible appears uh, not to regard insects and other invertebrates as living in the same sense as humans and vertebrate animals. In other words, the Hebrew never refers to them as nefesh kaya, or living soul uh, or creature. Unlike humans and even fish. Also, insects don't have the same sort of blood that vertebrates do, yet the life of the flesh is in the blood, as we see in Leviticus 17.11. Uh, therefore, uh, the pre-fall diet of animals did not necessarily exclude invertebrates. So that's one answer. So um, when we're discussing pre-fall, uh, it could be possible that just as they ate uh, plant life, that they also ate um, invertebrates as well. All right, so that's one answer. All right, another answer to the question is this. Before the fall, um, many attack or defense structures could have been used in a vegetarian lifestyle. For example, even today, some baby spiders use their webs to trap pollen for food, and the small Central American jumping spider, Bahira, uh, Bagheera uh, kiplingi, uh, I might not be saying that right, I apologize, um, is a genuine vegetarian spider, eating mainly specialized leaf tips of Acadia shrubs called Belchian bodies. There was also uh, the case of a lion that wouldn't eat meat. I think his name was Little Tyke. Even many poisons actually have beneficial purposes in small amounts. Microbes help prime the immune system. Many allergies might be due to a society that's too clean. Note that the immune system would be important even before the fall to distinguish between self and non-self. What about pandas, too? That's my own insertion there. Have you ever seen the teeth on a panda? It looks like a meat eater, but it's actually, of course, a plant eater. The third option being that God foreknew the fall, so he proclaimed, or excuse me, he programmed creatures with information for attack and defense features, which they would need in a cursed world. And this information was switched on at the fall. Uh, or you could say that maybe this naturally happened as a course of, as a recourse of God letting go of the reins a little bit. So these are some potential options. Um, I don't think any of them are scripturally unsound. It certainly doesn't seem to violate any scripture um, by saying this. And it does not require God to fundamentally create new uh, things. So uh, I think I think these explanations are perfectly valid depending on the context of the conversation you find yourself in. Hopefully they will work for you. All right, third question. Is uh, pain, suffering and death a result of Satan's fall. I'm not going to spend very much time on this. And I'll tell you why. I think the Bible is so clear on this that if you're going to claim that Satan is responsible for Adam's fall, then you have to impose that view directly in contrast to so much scripture that doesn't state that. Uh, that certainly my going through the issue for 10 minutes is not going to persuade you. There is no 
direct link between the fall of man or the sin, pain, suffering, death, and the fall of Satan. Satan is going to get his just desserts one day. But his punishment will be for his own rebellion. He is not judged the way that you and I are judged. He is not judged for what you and I are judged for. We are held responsible for our sin. Check out the doctrine of federal headship sometime. And you'll figure out what's meant by all that. All right? Adam is the federal head of humanity. This is why Eve, similarly, is not to shoulder the blame necessarily. The Bible does not say that through one woman sin entered into the world. The Bible does not say that through one angelic fallen being sin entered the world and death by sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. And this is a often parroted attempt by many who don't hold the young age view of Genesis to say that animal death and pain and suffering were allowed pre-human fall because Satan had already fell. But there is no scriptural indication of this at all. There's no scriptural indication that Satan's angelic fall had any kind of cause and effect relationship with an organism here on earth. Now we see, all right, let's get this clear, during man's fall, we do see Satan tempting Eve. But no connection is made. These angels were apparently given their own free will. We were given our own free will to reject God. We did it on our own merit. We weren't persuaded necessarily. Um, and I mean that in a controlling sense by the devil. Similarly, because of his fall, that has nothing to do with the death and suffering that took place um, with any death and suffering that could have taken place uh, in animal life before the fall of man. And again, man and soulish animals are considered the same kind of biological life, biblically speaking. So this just doesn't follow. I want to give you a quick quote here from Sarfati, and then I'm going to move on on this because it's so. This is this is such an imposition on onto the text to try to get it to read that way. All right, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me because it's just not what the Bible says. All right, Sarfati writes, "It was only when God addressed Adam that the death sentence was pronounced." Genesis three nineteen, and as shown below. It was physical death. He argues for that in the rest of the book. He says the rest of the Bible attributes death to Adam, not Eve or Satan. For that, you can certainly look up Romans 5, 12 through 19, 
and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. There's no biblical connection of the angelic fall with the physical death or suffering of the material world. That's it. Case closed. End of story. Next question. What's the connection between animal sacrifice and uh, Jesus' sacrifice? Now, this is a really interesting question because it has to do with exactly what we talked about last week. I mentioned that the first mention of a death of an of of the death of an animal in scripture seems to be immediately post fall when the uh, when they when god covers adam and eve with the skins of an animal presumably the word uh, I, I don't have it in front of me but the hebrew word that is used there is never ever 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 used of something other than the skin of an animal, especially in the Bible, all right? So this was an animal skin. This was not some covering that God created just to simply look like an animal skin or some fanciful thing like that. Remember, if the Bible doesn't say it, or if if, if it's not a reasonable inference on it, then it's just a mere imposition on the text, and there's no need to have that. Now, this is, again, a case where I could... Um, give you my personal thoughts on it, but I think the Bible speaks so clearly to um, the animal, the connection that exists between the animal sacrifice and, and Jesus' sacrifice that we could um, just read the Bible and get a good understanding of it. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to read Hebrews 10, which is the chapter famously that links this, or, or that, that makes this connection. And you can uh, certainly go read it for yourself, but I'm going to read the first 18 verses to you. Hope you don't mind. Um, but the Bible says it much better than I can. Um, this is where I would take the teaching from anyway. So I might as well just read it, okay? Hebrews 10, uh, starting at verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins." But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by, which, uh, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, 
which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he have said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. In their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Isn't that an amazing passage of Scripture? It's clear that we see the link between the two offerings presented here in this in this text. But as is the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is just simply better. He's established his purposes. He has accomplished God's purposes forever. And so I think we need to um, realize that we can't just separate these two things. Now, what does this mean? Let's get back on track here. What does this mean for the discussion at hand? Because we're answering questions from last week. Well, remember, kind of the implication here is that if if there is really no link between animal sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice, if there's if there's no link between those two things, then we don't have to to say that in the very beginning animal sacrifices were a result of the atonement for sin. In other words, we don't have to say that animal death uh, is, a, is a picture or a foreshadowing of Christ's death on the cross. But again, how do you read your Bible and not get this? And furthermore, think about Cain and Abel. Why is it? We all know that Cain brought his sacrifice from the ground and Abel brought the lamb. He killed a lamb. Have you ever stopped to think about how Abel knew to kill a lamb as a sacrifice, to bring a sacrifice to God? It was probably passed down to him from his parents. Adam and Eve. Well, why would Adam and Eve know anything about that? They were never instructed, were they, to give animal sacrifices, especially pre-fall. They knew because immediately right after the fall, God showed them. God sacrificed the lamb. Remember, God walked with them. Now, that might be some kind of theophany, or I don't think it's merely an anthrop- anthropomorphism. It could be. But it seems to me that God killed a lamb and made coats of skins for 
them. It says that the Lord God made made for them or fashioned for them. I, I forget exactly how it's put, uh, this coat of skins. So it's pretty clear to me that the only reason that Abel knew that he had to bring an animal sacrifice as an offering and that that was the correct sacrifice is that he understood that from his parents who indeed were um, uh, subject made subject to that first animal sacrifice. That was indeed a result of their sins. Where the shed, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And of course, the New Testament revelation, this chapter in Hebrews, this helps us to realize that what that's really talking about is Christ's blood. But remember, in Hebrews 10.1, the law having a shadow of good things to come. That's what it's talking about. Um, so, this sacrifice for uh, sins that was brought was certainly never going to redeem anyone. However, it was a foreshadowing and definitely has a typological relationship um, between those two. So, uh, yeah, so that's very important, and I think we still have to maintain that, and I think if we're going to maintain that, then we need to be pretty consistent that there was no uh, animal death and suffering prior to the fall. All right, last question here. Didn't the curse just simply make bad things worse? Uh, some have claimed, all right, that the language in early uh, Genesis denotes uh, bad things, just simply becoming a little bit worse um, rather than some hard entrance of, of suffering and hardship. Um, examples of this could be Eve's uh, travail in birth or Adam's toil um, in the garden. In, in other words, um, it says that, for instance, in the first case, that Eve's sorrow was going to be multiplied. In Adam's case, it says that... Um, um, I mean, obviously, he was working in the garden before because every herb was given to them for uh, meat. So he was doing at least some kind of, 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 of gardening in order to, to feed and provide for, for his family. So doesn't, uh, doesn't this just make bad things worse? Well, as with some of these other issues, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem obvious to me that this is the issue. Um, I mean, why would God curse the ground, uh, if it hardly make uh, made any difference to Adam's work. It seems like, um, and again, I'm, forgive me here, but I'm just using some common sense. Um, if you're talking about a perfect ground, a very good ground, and then you have a cursed ground with thorns and thistles, it appears to me uh, especially if we consider the fact that now the whole creation is 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 messed up. Who knows what kind of natural disasters had immediately begun taking place? It looks to me that um, if God goes through all the trouble to curse the ground and make this difficult for Adam, it looks to me that prior to that, it just wasn't difficult at all. Um, in other words, we should expect that it was just a light tending of the garden, not strenuous, not not you know, not anything that would be considered hard work at all. But now uh, uh, we're talking about toil and uh, suffering, and it's going to, by the sweat of his brow, uh, this kind of work is going to get done. So I don't think that we have to assume that it was bad, a bad kind of, of work sort of thing that was happening. Um, 
that let me talk about this a little bit here. Uh, so, like, let's look at um, Eve's uh, travail, uh, right, in, in birth. Um, it is said to be increased or multiplied. But in no way does that suggest that she actually had pain and suffering prior to that point. Isn't an increase uh, just as likely to have come from zero? I mean, if, if something was, if you had no pain and suffering, and then suddenly you do have pain and suffering, then what happened is your pain and suffering was increased. I mean, that seems pretty obvious and pretty logical to me. So I don't think we have to say there that, that, that God simply made birth pain a worse kind of pain. Um, you know, I mean, I know people who who strive for what what it's not really a pain but it's actually a pleasurable feeling that you get as a result of stressing your body like your muscles and things like that so i mean even if we granted that there was some small degree of what we might think of today as pain it might have not been actual suffering at all all right so um that's a thought, all right? Now, on Adam's uh, deal, remember, they were given the command to subdue and have uh, dominion over the animals, over the beasts of the field. Um, and there's no reason to take these as militaristic terms. They certainly could be used that way, but again, it's all depending on context. And in this case, um, to, to say that these are militaristic terms that uh, that it's going to be difficult, for example, to care for the animals and to care for plant life and things of this nature, uh, it's simply an a priori uh, commitment um, to a certain interpretation uh, that assumes animal pain and, and suffering and, and death in order for that to be the case. Um, now, the Hebrew words in question are kavash and radah. All right, and they can equally mean to control or to reign. So it's all depending on the context. And take it in context, this seems to be the use of Genesis 1. I've even personally made the connection before there between studying God's, uh, God's creation. I mean, in other words, this is a, and Dr. Kurt Wise has argued this as well. I mean, this seems a good reason to do science. See, on a biblical worldview, we are told to, to, to control and to reign over uh, the creation. And so in order to do that, we need to learn more about the creation. And so the scientific endeavor is the one in which we would, would take to learn more about God's natural world. So um, here is a case where really, if nothing matters anyway on a purposeless universe, there's no reason at all really to do science, to, to make discoveries. Because quite literally, one day, it is all going to end. There is going to be a heat death according to the second law of thermodynamics. And it's all going away. In the ultimate grand scheme of things, if nothing matters, why do science at all? And the, the consistent atheists throughout the years who have realized this and acted as a result of that have caused catastrophic uh, pain and suffering for their fellow man. Sarfati mentions uh, the use of these two words, uh, kavash and rada, later on in Scripture. Uh, Leviticus uh, 25, 43 and following condemns ruthless dominion, or rada. 
In contrast, uh, 1 Kings 4, 24 through 25 says that Solomon's uh, dominion, same word, resulted in peace, safety, and each man under his own vine and fig tree. So the type of radah must be decided by context. Since these words were spoken by God into an Edenic situation before the fall, it is especially hard to imagine any sort of destructiveness or ruthless implication to them. Uh, so I hope uh, answering these questions has kind of helped tie up some of the loose ends that maybe you had from last week. We're uh, over an hour now, so we need to go ahead and uh, and cut things off. But look, if you have further questions on this, um, please feel free to ask. I'm sure there are more questions that arose out of last week and, and maybe even more this week uh, other than just these five. So if you have questions, feel free to email us, go to the website and you can ask a voice question there, and we'll actually play it on the podcast if you want. Uh, all you do is go click on the blue um, sidebar uh, on the on the right, and it uh, you see a blue button there that says "Ask a Question," and you can do that and use the microphone on your computer to to ask a question, or you can email us Steve at steveshram dot com. All right, I encourage you again to uh, check out the uh the uh the resource there on the website we've got videos and articles and, and and podcasts and use our advanced search feature you'll find that right there on the sidebar you can click there and go to the advanced search and um search through our archives you know uh, see what you can find if you have uh, questions about your faith go there and um perhaps we can provide you with some uh, some meaningful answers to to the tough questions and uh, i hope uh, certainly uh, that that is the case. All right. Um, again, we're probably going to revisit this one more time next week uh, to go ahead and talk about the fall in the wider context and um, how we can use this to to really answer the problem of evil and and help to to bring others to the faith and, and overcome these these objections that they have. Uh, and simply, the best way to do that is just by telling uh, the Christian story by accurately telling the Christian story. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you for your graciousness to us. We want to say thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us, that we could be redeemed. We want to thank you that Jesus is better, that Jesus is a better sacrifice, that Jesus is better than the law. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the animal sacrifices. He's better than the angels. He's better than anything that we could have possibly hoped for. Jesus is the answer to all problems. Jesus is the final solution to sin and to death and to suffering. We want to thank you, Lord, for, for closing the loophole. Father, we want to thank you for giving us the gift of, of a coherent worldview, for giving us an answer, for giving us an apologetic, Lord, that we can answer for you and that we can uh, draw closer to you and have even more confidence in you and in your word. I want to thank you, Lord, personally right now for each and every one of my listeners. I want to thank you for bringing them to me, and I want to thank you for allowing me the time and the space and the opportunity to create this content and to serve you with it, Lord. I pray now that you'd honor this work. I pray that you would help us not to, to say anything or do anything that you wouldn't have us to do, that you would guide our steps and order our steps uh, in a way um, that uh, that is right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. I hope everyone has a blessed week, and we'll see you right back here uh, next week, same time, same place. All right, God bless. Take care.